You are now listening to the May 30th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian from Story of Kings. Last time we learned how David relied on God in all he did. He did not act on his own accord, no matter what the circumstances were. Think about his reaction when Saul died. A normal person would have felt avenged when his adversary perishes. However, David was not like that. When he heard about the death of Saul, he did not feel justified or show relief or happiness. Rather, he grieved for Saul as God's anointed and that God's glory wasn't revealed through him. After Saul's death, David went to Hebron as God directed him. He wasn't sure what to expect in Hebron, but the elders of Judah came to him and asked him to be their king. David must have understood this as God's providence, so he became king over Judah. Now notice that he was the king over Judah, meaning he did not become the ruling king over all Israel. Only the house of Judah accepted David as their king out of the twelve tribes of Israel. Then, what was happening to the rest of the tribes? While David assumed his position as king over Judah, another king was being enthroned in northern Israel by the other eleven tribes. His name was Ishbosheth. He was the lone surviving son of Saul. Ishbosheth became king when he was 40. Beyond that, the Bible does not have much record of how Ishbosheth rose to the kingship. What we do know from the Bible is that Abner, the commander of the army, and his uncle was using his nephew, Ishbosheth, as the front to exercise the real power behind him. In a split kingdom, there was bound to be conflict. One day, the two forces, one from Judah and one from Israel in the north, clashed in a battle by the pool of Gibeon. The army of Israel was led by Abner, and the army of Judah was led by Joab, David's commander. In the battle, an unfortunate incident happened. Asahel, Joab's brother, died from Abner's spear. This incident led to a much bigger incident later. The stalemate between Judah and Israel appeared to persist for the time being. Yet, underneath that appearance, the house of David was becoming stronger while the house of Ishbosheth was becoming weaker and weaker. The internal struggle between Ishbosheth and his uncle Abner was getting worse. You see, Abner had an ulterior motive to become the king himself. In the end, Abner became frustrated with Ishbosheth and decided to betray him. He went to see David and suggested they make a covenant. In return, he would hand over northern Israel to David. David agreed, but posed one condition on Abner. Abner had to return his first wife, Michael. Well, she was his first love, and it could be perhaps that his heart still longed for her. What was clear, though, was the fact 
that Michael was Saul's daughter and being married together would signify his legitimate position as Saul's son-in-law. That might serve a sign to the people that his relationship with the house of Saul was on the mend. It would signal his desire for peace over all Israel. So what do you think happened? Well, Abner carried out his agreement. Michael at the time was married to another man, but that didn't matter. Abner brought Michael back to David. Then Abner summoned all the tribes of northern Israel and convinced them that they needed to follow David to survive. With agreement from all the tribes, Abner headed back to Hebron to personally deliver the news to David. David then held a feast for Abner. Abner left in peace after the successful unification treaty. Just then, trouble began to brew. Joab returned from a military campaign and heard about what happened between David and Abner. If it had been only about finally attaining peace with the house of Saul, he might have been okay with that. But Joab was obsessed with the fact that Abner had killed his own brother. He became incredibly upset that the killer of his brother had walked into his territory and walked out in peace. Perhaps Joab was also concerned about the competition against Abner in a unified kingdom under David. So he proceeded to deceive Abner and had him return to Hebron. When Abner returned, not suspecting any foul play because of his role in the unification deal, Joab murdered him. When David heard about what happened between Joab and Abner, his heart sank. He was concerned about what might happen to the unification agreement without Abner to drive it. Of course, David confronted Joab, but that could not bring Abner back. He knew he had to act fast. He first ordered all Judah to mourn for Abner's death. In grief, he fasted with all of Judah. At the funeral procession, David followed Abner's bier, weeping for all to see. David's sincere and outward exhibition of grief over Abner's death showed everyone, including the people from northern Israel, that David was innocent in Abner's death. When Ishbosheth and the people of northern Israel heard about the death of Abner in Hebron, they lost courage and fell into panic. In the midst of this turmoil, two former commanders in Saul's army, Banna and Rechab, devised a wicked plot. They would murder Ishbosheth and present his head to David to gain favor from him. They snuck into Ishbosheth's bedroom, killed him, beheaded him, and went to Hebron to see David. But David did not greet them with open arms as they had expected. David pointed out that they had murdered their own king. Under that charge from David, the two murderers were then beheaded. David gave Ishbosheth's head a proper burial in the tomb where Abner was buried. Once all those who had opposed David in northern Israel were gone, the tribes of northern Israel came to David in Hebron and asked him to become king over them. David was then anointed and became the king over all of Israel in front of all of the elders and the people of Israel. That was seven years and six months after he became king over Judah. This concludes today's episode of Story of Kings. 
Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Making Disciples One-to-One. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Well, this week, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, uh, which is called the Great Commission by some, and others have called it the Great Omission, text that is given to us by Christ as to what we are called to do. Now, to be clear, Bible speaks of making disciples in both a, a short way and a long way. So if you're reading through the Bible, sometimes discipleship, that word making disciples, is used in a short way, and by that we mean evangelism. So if you're reading in Acts 14, 21, you might read and find that it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium. That was speaking of the way that they went and shared the gospel to people who were not disciples and became disciples through their evangelistic ministry. But there are other places where it speaks of discipleship in a longer way, like the text that we're looking at this morning in Matthew 28. Now, this speaks of the process of making a disciple, beginning with evangelism and then baptism, and then the way that we mature disciples who then go out to make more disciples. See, Matthew's gospel, as we are going through it, I just want to catch you up to speed. It is a gospel that is uniquely fixed on Jesus is the great king from the line of David and Abraham. See, that's how Matthew opens up his gospel. It's actually with the genealogy, a family tree. And he's connecting Jesus to both David and to Abraham. See, that's why he opens up with this. He's trying to show that he follows in the human line of the Davidic king David and back to Abram and is the fulfillment of all those promises, those covenantal promises that were made to those men would now be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But Matthew does something else. See, a good way to understand a book, if you're trying to understand a book, is to begin by reading the introduction and the conclusion. And the same is true in Matthew. You can understand the book better of Matthew if you're reading the intro and the conclusion that we are looking at today. See, Matthew shows Jesus not only wields authority on earth as an earthly descendant of David, he ushers in the kingdom of heaven where God is. Now, a number of scholars like Jonathan Pennington have shown that Daniel is probably likely in the background of Matthew's mind as he is unveiling his gospel and explaining who Jesus is. You remember Daniel. Daniel opens up, and it speaks of Daniel and his relationship with Nebuchadnezzar, this great king of Babylon, a fearsome king. But in chapter 5, you'll remember that God actually strikes down Nebuchadnezzar in his pride because he thinks he is great and too great for God to touch. And we find in Daniel 5, that he is pictured, this great king of Babylon, as being reduced to eating grass like an ox. Now, that's a humbling image, right? We remember in Daniel 5.21, the author adds, until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. You see that? This great God, there is no earthly king that rages against God that will not have a given account to the Most High God. Daniel 7 envisions another scene, one like the Son of Man who is descending. He is riding in on a chariot of clouds. Who is it that you expect to see riding on those clouds? God's ride on clouds. And so when this man, this one like the Son of Man, shows up on clouds, it is saying something about the nature of who he is that is unique from every other earthly king. 
And I believe that Matthew is thinking that this is exactly who Jesus is, who has come as the one from the line of David, but who also has descended from heaven, who is the long-awaited Messiah, who is fully man and fully God. He is the son of man, and he is fully the son of God. Matthew 28 ends with that very image. The king of the nations, who has all authority on earth, also has all authority in heaven. He is declared king of heaven. And see, heaven here is not just him pointing up. He's really just sovereign over all things down here and like the stars and stuff. The up, the heaven, is actually the abode of the gods where God lives. And he is saying, the one who has authority here on earth, catch this, he also has authority where God is. He has divine authority. Here in this text, Jesus' authoritative presence resides in Matthew with the local church. We saw that in chapter 16 and 18 and, and 28 seems to point to this. And here's what I want you to hear. Local churches are actually embassies of heaven here on earth. It might not feel like that, but that's exactly what we are told in Matthew's gospel. We are given the keys to the kingdom and heaven isn't just pointing up, it is actually pointing to a reality that has come down and is here with us. So making disciples means a new citizenship. Did you see that? With a new lifestyle and a new king and a new future and hope. We have a new homeland with a new king whose authority knows no bounds. Well, this morning we'll see that Jesus commands disciples to make disciples of Jesus with all authority in heaven on earth. That's our big idea. You can write that down. Jesus commands disciples to make disciples disciples of Jesus with all authority in heaven on earth. And we'll see a number of things from this text this morning. Hang with me. First, who does God send on his mission? We find the answer to that in verses 16 to 17. Now, before we read, remember back in verses 1 to 10, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they relayed Jesus and the angel's message to the disciples. They told them, you need to meet Jesus in Galilee. And that's where we pick up in verse 16. And this is what it says. Look there with me. Matthew 28, 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped. But some doubted. Now there's no explicit mention of Jesus giving the disciples the exact GPS coordinates of this mountaintop rendezvous. But Jesus spends a lot of time on mountains in Matthew. If you read through, you'll remember that he confronts Satan on a mountain in chapter 4. He preaches a sermon on the mountain in chapter 5. But later, he fed 5,000 from a mountain in chapter 15. The mountain transfiguration happens in chapter 17. And then, of course, there's that Mount of Olives teaching that takes place in verse 24. But here, Matthew concludes with Jesus speaking with unprecedented authority from a mountain. Now, this could be the mountain of Beatitudes that he began his ministry on. We don't know. But I love commentator Frederick Bruner's insight on the 11 disciples that show up here on this mountain. The number 11 limps. It is not perfect like 12. Matthew sees Jesus commanding a defective 11. Do you see it? Not all 12 make it up to the top of the mountain. Uh, even saying the number 11 immediately reminds us of Judas selling Jesus out and then hanging himself. And 11 really does call the great and great commission into question. I mean, is this the church that Jesus promised to build in Matthew 16, 18, where he said, the gates of Hades or death shall not prevail against it? Because Judas is dead and Peter ran off. 
And verse 17 doesn't exactly bolster our confidence. And notice that Matthew says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. I mean, you have to admit a resurrection is kind of a unique thing that's going to raise some questions. You may be asking, why did Matthew have to put that in there, that some doubted? I think he put that in there for you and me. Because catch this, Jesus didn't just come to rescue sinners. He came to employ and deploy them on his search and rescue mission. He wants to use sinners saved by grace for his glories. Now catch this, we're thinking about how individuals are those who are called to make disciples. But before we ever get there, take note of the kind of people that Jesus sends to make disciples. When I read about the disciples and some of their heroic stories, it's hard for me to relate to them. It is hard for me to relate to the Peter who preached at Pentecost or John who was called up to the heavens. But I can relate to Peter recovering from the shame of denying Jesus three times to a little girl. Or Thomas who says, I need to actually touch the holes in your hand so that I can trust that it really is you, Jesus, raised from the dead bodily. Or Mary Magdalene who was demon-possessed. See, some struggled with doubts even after seeing Jesus raised from the dead multiple times. But praise God that he calls 11-ish men and women like Peter and Thomas and Mary and me who come limping with doubts up the mountain to meet the resurrected king, expectant for him to help their unbelief. Don't miss this. Jesus is building his church and he builds his indestructible church with broken people like Peter. And Paul, who found a completely new identity in Christ's work on the cross. And the same God, his son to the world to save us, now sends us into the world to proclaim the good news of salvation to others. Now, please don't miss this. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple of King Jesus. Disciples make disciples. That's what Christians do. I'm curious as you hear that, if you're asking yourself the question, am I engaged in making disciples today. And maybe you are and you don't know it. Maybe you're not and you know it. And maybe there are all kinds of reasons that you're not engaged in the way that you ought to be. And, and let me just say this. There are all kinds of times when you come to the scriptures and you ought to be expectant to find all kinds of things that make you uncomfortable because catch this, the Bible also says you're broken. And if you're broken, that means that you need to be fixed and there are ways that you don't work right. And it's not just you, it's everybody. We need the gospel to come in and transform and shape us. So when we come to the Bible, our approach and posture should not be, I am excited to read the Bible this morning because I want to see just how great I am. And when we come to the word of God, we see how great Jesus is and how much we need to be transformed and the hope that there is for real transformation. When I come and I'm reading Paul and he's in prison, he's writing to Philippians and he's saying, I want you to rejoice at all times. Look, I'm in prison, I'm rejoicing and I want you to rejoice always. I don't come to that and say, man, I knocked this out today. I am so glad that I'm such a joyful person. No, I expect that when I come to that, that I have a choice to make. Am I going to really believe that the thing that God has called me to, that he's going to help me with, and that I need in that moment not to pull away because it's just impossible, that I need to press forward to say, I think God is calling me into something that is not possible for natural man, but it is spiritual man. He has given his spirit, and I believe that he wants this for me. Well, I think it's the same way with discipleship. You know, maybe this morning you're not making disciples and you're thinking for a number of reasons. I've got reasons that I'm not making disciples. Uh, maybe this morning the reason that you're not making disciples because you're struggling over assurance in your own life. You've got some kind of past sin, some brokenness. Maybe you're like Mary Magdalene and you were demon-possessed at one time or people thought you were. 
Or maybe you're like Peter, who in the past has a history of denying Christ, or even Paul was killing Christians. And in that moment where you're called to make disciples, you're thinking, surely he means people who have a better rap sheet than I do. And maybe the real root of it isn't just past sins, but you really haven't pressed in to the reality of God's present grace. You really haven't believed the true nature of what the cross and Jesus Christ dying for your sins means for you, past, present, and future. That God really can use someone like you. So says God's word. Maybe you haven't even realized that God is in the business all of the time of actually coming in and saying, guess what? I'm here to show you that your merits are not so impressive to me. In fact, all of those things that you are ashamed of are the very things that I'm going to use to make much of myself in you. Because catch this, I don't need power to show my power. I love to make my power known in weakness. And maybe that's you today. You need to buy into what the gospel says about you and who you truly are in Christ. Maybe it's not that. Maybe your struggle is with taking initiative and making disciples tied more deeply to deep-rooted doubts that you really have been accepted by God. Maybe it's this call to discipleship and not just be a disciple, but to make a disciple that you realize, I've got a bigger issue. I haven't really believed that God has accepted me. And so you need to press into Christ more fully. That's what you need to do today so that in the future, he would use you to make disciples of others. Or maybe you feel like you gimp because you don't know God's word well enough to be on mission. Please hear me. Being a disciple means observing all that Jesus has taught. And that comes to us through the apostles. That means that we need to be a people of the word, a people of the book. We need to know scripture to make disciples. But if you're thinking to yourself, I don't know enough scriptures to make disciples, then what are you doing about it? Are you reading your Bible daily? Are you taking part in all of the equipping classes that we provide for you to teach you God's word? Are you meeting with another brother or sister who knows God's word so that they can fill you up to the brim so that you feel ready to go out and tell others about the beauty of the gospel? You don't need a seminary degree to share the gospel with others. In fact, some of the best evangelists I know don't have a seminary degree. Sorry, seminary professors, not against you. Like, that's me too. But we need to know God's word and we need to know it well if we're going to be ready to share the gospel with the world who is an enmity against God. Or maybe you falter over the cost of time or money, or you just want to be bothered with discipleship. Christians want to be bothered with discipleship. Or maybe you stumble over unconfessed sin in your life right now. And as you hear the call to discipleship, that's the thing, the, the impediment that comes to mind is I can't continue in this sin and be a servant of Jesus and tell others about Jesus if my life does not look like Jesus. Well, maybe today the call for you is, is just, I need to repent of that sin. I need to find another brother or sister to confess that to and ask them to pray for and help me and hold me accountable so that I can be ready to do what God has made me to do, which is to tell others about how they can become disciples of the greatest king that has ever been and ever will be. Catch this. Jesus' response to the worshipers who doubted. Jesus doesn't completely fix them before he sends them. He doesn't give them a certificate before they go. Disciples grow as they go. And some people have a hard time with this text because they define a disciple as being the black ops special services kind of believer as opposed to every believer. But Jesus is employing and deploying all those he has called to himself. Catch this. The idea that not every Christian is called to make disciples is alien to the Bible. Every true Christian is a disciple sent on Christ's mission. See, Jesus sends imperfect disciples to do his perfect work. Isn't that good? Man, that means I can do it. That means you can do it. God sends imperfect people to do his perfect work. There's a second thing that we see here. Notice the king of the universe speaks to his church at verse 18. Pay attention. 
our efforts to disciples and to disciple others says something about how well we've listened to who Jesus says Jesus is. See, Jesus couples this image of a small group of beleaguered disciples with himself is the great king who has received all authority and heaven on earth. Do you see it? I almost see the weak, tired disciples crawling up the mountain, barely making it there, and then all of a sudden seeing Jesus Christ high and lifted up on the greatest throne that's ever been created. Can you imagine that image? I can't wait for that image. And here we find that as they are looking at them, and they are looking at Christ, he is preparing them for his exit, for his ascension. And in verse 18, he leads with, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, does this mean the eternal Son of God gained more authority by virtue of his resurrection? Of Jesus, Paul says in Colossians 1.16, for by him, this eternal Son of God, all things were created, all things, from the beginning, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That is a pretty elevated vision of the eternal son of God before he came and took on flesh. No molecule escapes his authority. You know, contrary to how CNN, Fox News, C-SPAN leave you feeling, this is the past, present, and future state of affairs. God, Christ, his son is king of all. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 tells us Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father on the last day. That day is coming. He is the alpha and the omega. So what if anything changed about Jesus' authority at the resurrection? God dwells and earth, the universe. See, Jesus is mediating all of God the Father's authority. That means that the mission that follows comes from the very top, the king of kings. Catch the therefore that follows in verse 19. It tells us Jesus' mission for the church and individual Christians is to make disciple-making disciples. All authority has been given to him. Therefore, this is what we do, make disciple-making disciples. Notice third, Jesus commands the church to go and make disciples of all nations in verses 19 to 20. You can look there with me. Here's what he says, verses 19 to 20. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always. Now, notice that he says, go therefore, and that therefore is pointing back to Jesus' unparalleled authority. Now, some have said that the go, he's not commanding you to go because of the grammar of the text. Now, I'm not sure, but as I am looking at the nature of what's been said, he just told us he has all authority in heaven on earth. So whatever comes, despite whatever grammar, you know, you're looking at, like that is coming with the authority of a command of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he says, go and make disciples. In other words, you don't need to chart your path to reach the nations. He is saying that everywhere you go, you're in the business of strategically seeking to make disciples. See, Jesus' cosmic authority propels ordinary Christians to become part of Jesus' mission to make disciples of all nations. Now imagine just how nuts this might have sounded in the original context. You think about this. A number of disciples who were hearing this probably never traveled more than 100 miles from home. And almost 2,000 years before we had iPhones or Delta, they are being told they will deliver and carry the gospel to the nations. 
Now, you think that sounds audacious today because it's hard. It would have sounded audacious even more so for them. I mean, this sounds like the trailer for the original Mission Impossible. I mean, nobody can do this, you know, and the music kicks in. Who could do this? Well, we can't do it by ourselves, but God can and God will. In fact, part of being a disciple is joining God's mission of reaching the lost, trusting God to be God. Now hear me, this is going to challenge the individualism of our age that recoils at thinking of others, especially those who are different than you, right? Like it's going to challenge you in that. You're thinking like, what about all my stuff that I've got going? Like, am I really supposed to like live my life to make disciples of the nations, people that I don't even know yet that aren't even like me? Called to make disciples. And we are told all throughout the pages of Scripture, and we know this experientially, it will cost us time, money, comfort, and our individual pursuits. Some of you are going to have to bowl less if you're going to make disciples, or maybe you bowl more because that's how you make disciples. But we need to make disciples, and it is costly. And Jesus' command here means Christ's authority, not self-centered desire, propels our lives to look to love our neighbors and the neighborhood, and that neighborhood just got bigger. Jesus' command to this group of Jewish Christians couldn't have been more uncomfortable. They were to go to the Gentile nations and make disciples of them. They were called, and here's what it means, followers of Jesus Christ, King Jesus and his kingdom. It looks like this. We are making disciples of our families, those individuals that are in your home. Like that is discipleship. Some of you, this is an intense season of discipleship because you've got children in your home. And catch the irony of this. Your children need to see that you love others outside of their home, that the love of Christ actually propels you to make disciples of others so that they see the gospel is bigger than just your family. You need to love your families in a way that demonstrates and models that you actually love others outside of your family that shares DNA. We need to make disciples of fellow church members, according to the New Testament, maturing them, building them up, investing in the church, coworkers, neighbors, and people we don't know yet, and places we haven't been before, God is calling us to. And Jesus says there are two priorities in making more disciples. In fact, there's only one major verb here, one main verb, that is to make disciples, but there are these two participles that are dangling off of it that tell us how we make disciples. We are to do it by baptizing and teaching. We'll look at both of those. First, notice in verse 19, we are to baptize them in the name of the triune God. Did you see that? We're making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time to tarry here too long, but Matthew talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And baptism for him, it pictures entrance into God's kingdom with God's king. And that is seen most clearly, if not exclusively, this side of the cross in the local church. That is where Christ is king, is in the context of these local churches that are gathered around the apostolic teaching. That's why you are baptized into the name of the triune God. You are joining something much bigger. God in his community, his new covenant community. Now you might ask, why does Jesus highlight baptism though? Have you ever thought about that? He says, I want you to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. I mean, told us to observe baptism, so why did you have to say that? Couldn't we just observe all that you taught elsewhere and that would be included? I think there's a reason for that. See, baptism in the New Testament is pictured as that entranceway into relationship with the Father and the church. Now, baptism doesn't save us, but it is an outward picture, kind of like stamping our passport, that we have entered into the kingdom of God. We become citizens of God's kingdom. It's a public declaration of a local church exercising the power of keys, saying that we believe this is one who truly is a child of God. 
We have a new citizenship. It's the outward display of that. And so he's saying this is the initial point of contact for those who believe they are baptized. It would not have been made sense to them to say that you are a believer who has not been baptized. Now, can you be a believer and not be baptized? Yes, but that's not normal. Baptism means something. It's commitment. See, baptism is the local church faithfully using those keys of the kingdom that we see spoken of in Matthew 16 and 18 at the beginning of our series. We're declaring as far as we can tell with human eyes, and our eyes are human, but that we believe someone is born again believer in the name of the triune God. And if you're a believer who hasn't been baptized and are here, after the service, we've got some people who are going to be praying up front, and they would love nothing more than to talk to you about next steps of what it looks like to be a baptized believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. But there's another thing that he says here. Notice in verse 20, disciples teach disciples to observe Jesus' commands. Disciples teach disciples to follow Jesus' commands. See, Jesus says the second part of disciple-making is to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Did you catch that? Disciples, they teach other disciples to observe all that Jesus commanded the apostles. Now, what commands are those? Well, you remember the Ten Commandments? They were broken up into to two parts. First four are towards God, the last six are towards man. And we find that when Jesus shows up in Matthew 22, uh, he's asked, what is the great commandment? And he says, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. But we understand the whole Old Testament in light of who Jesus is. So there's a real sense in which there's a climax and, and a greater understanding and clarity of what it means to be a believer once Jesus comes. And 1 John, I believe, is the Apostle John looking on this reality in light of Christ. What does the law mean in light of Christ? And he says, here's what it looks like now that Jesus has come. Here are the two halves of what it means to obey the commandments of Jesus. If we were to give broad categories, one is believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. And the second is love one another as Jesus Christ has loved you. Do you see that? Loving one another is specifically speaking, I think, in context of the local church of loving those believers you have covenanted with in the way that Christ has loved you. And it's by that demonstration that others will know that you are followers of Jesus. So come in close. Here's what that means. Making disciples means proclaiming Christ, protecting the gospel that centers on Christ, and displaying what it looks like to love other Christians as Christ has loved us. It's about proclaiming and protecting and displaying. That's what it looks like to be disciples. Uh, First, we proclaim Christ because it's the spoken word of the gospel that causes us to be born again as disciples of Jesus. God is calling others to himself through the message about his son. So 1 Peter 1.23 says it this way, you, speaking to Christians, have been born again. Spiritual life has come to you, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That's the gospel. In Acts 4.12, Peter also said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus. See, Jesus saves us from God's wrath for our sins, which would have landed on us and landed us in hell forever, if not for him, that we are saved from God by God. That's what he's done. And I would add to that a third line, which is to God. We've been saved from God's just wrath that we deserve because we are sinners. We've been saved from God, but by God. He provided the only means that we can have to have acceptance with God. Jesus, his son who died for us. He lived our perfect life. He died on the cross in our place. He was raised from the dead. He is our king. He is the only way to salvation with the Father. But we were also saved to God, which means that if we are in Christ, we are no longer enemies 
who are unable to come into the presence of God, but we are children who are able to crawl into his lap. That's the reality of what the gospel does for you and me. See, we are those who proclaim that message, the gospel that brings new birth, which in turn causes those who are enemies of God to proclaim the goodness of God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, he says, we are a chosen race for this purpose, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Man, when we have stepped out of the darkness into the light, you want to tell others about what the light is like. And the local church proclaims the gospel. Uh, The church also, and Christians, they are protecting the gospel. Notice 1 Timothy 3.16 calls the church a pillar, the pillar and buttress of truth. Now, you know that pillars hold things up and buttresses hold things out. We protect it and we promote it. That's what we do with the gospel. And it's the church that's been called to do that. That's what the church does with truth, the truth and reality of the gospel. We don't manipulate it. We don't contort it. We don't get fancy with it. We're not trying to be creative with it. There's one truth that brings people from death to life and they can be held onto and trusted as an anchor of our souls until the day that Jesus comes back. We would keep our eyes fixed on that truth. Your life is a canvas that God is using to make look like his son Christ so that others that he has placed you in the lives of might see what God is like. And man, we look better together as an image of God because none of us are perfect and all of us have been gifted in ways that when we come together, we make much and more what it looks like to reflect the character of God. None of us do it perfectly, but we do it so much better together. In fact, in John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. By that love, all men will know that we are his disciples. It's in the context of our relationships with one another, looking like Christ, that we draw others towards God. And a sacrificially loving community is a powerful witness to the power of the gospel. But don't miss how the verse 20 ends. Fourth, Jesus promises his authoritative presence at all times. Notice he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now don't miss this. The great head of the new covenant, King Jesus, that covenant that Abraham and David were preparing us for is now fulfilled in Christ. And he is present with us in authority as we are binding and loosing people in his name as a local church. We're never alone on mission. We have the community of God's people, and we have the great king who is over us. In fact, John 17 promised us the spirit of Christ. And Acts 2 pictured what it looks like for God's spirit to reside with God's people. As we quickly descend this morning and and finish, I wanted to close up with some applications, how we think about one-to-one discipleship. So catch this. Our elders believe that gathered worship, community groups, and one-to-one discipleship are all important for making disciples who make disciples. We believe that our God has sovereignly placed you in a myriad of relationships that we are equipping you, we are preparing you to enter into as ambassadors of God's grace. So if you think about it, our local church is an embassy of heaven. There's a real sense in which to be a part of us, we are saying we believe that you are part of the citizenship of heaven. This is an embassy, a heavenly outpost for those who are in a world that is dying and passing away and they're looking for hope. That's us. And you're an ambassador of that embassy. And so until then, we are ambassadors for Jesus. And that means we want you to know a few things about one-to-one discipleship. As we clarify our mission, we know that some of you are like, man, I was just coming to gathered worship like a lot, like two out of four Sundays. So catch this. God has sovereignly chosen to place you in relationship with spouses, children, friends, co-workers, Starbucks, baristas, 
all kinds of people to fulfill the Davidic, Abrahamic, and now Christ covenants of blessing the nations. That's what he's made you for. And that means you're looking to evangelize those who are far from God. You didn't just happen upon the fields that you're walking in. You know what I'm talking about? Like you remember in Ruth when Ruth shows up and it has this little line that says she just happened upon the field of Boaz who just happened to be her kinsman redeemer. That's a joke. She didn't happen upon it. That was the sovereignty of God. And you don't think that sovereign God is at work in your life placing you in the relationships with people that their lives might be about to blow up and need you? Let me encourage you to build relationships with people. Love them for God and God's glory, not for what you can get out of it. Invite them to read through a book of the Bible with you. Did you know you can do that? You can do that with non-Christians. You'd be surprised that some non-Christians actually will read through the gospel of Mark with you. I've done that with tons of non-Christians. In fact, one of the people that I try to hold time off for if I ever get the opportunity to meet with someone is a non-Christian who will go through the gospel of Mark with me. I've had a number of people who have gone through and in the middle said, I don't want to do this anymore. Not because I don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, but I do not want to give up the life that I live. I've got friends who do not believe this stuff, who would not be my friends anymore if I believe this. And, and the, the cost is just too much. I'm not kidding. That very word. God would want me to change my sexuality if I believe this and I don't want to. You might have those people that do that. Do you think that you failed? No, you have been faithful in seeking to make disciples of those far from God. It not working does not mean that you have failed. If you're sharing the gospel with someone, it is always laying out God's word that does not return void. And you never know what God's going to do later with that. I've had others who have led to Christ in the book of Mark. And maybe that could be you. Maybe there's some that, that God would have you to lead through the scriptures and lead to Christ. That's what God is doing amongst us. You are our primary evangelistic strategy to reach Phoenix and beyond. And finally, build up the church through one-to-one -one discipleship. Discipleship isn't just about evangelism. It is that. But it's also about making disciples of your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Maturing them. To make a disciple and, and to be a disciple. And we all should have somebody in our life who's actually able to speak into our lives and call us to, to account in ways and to rebuke us and reprove us and love us and encourage us in meaningful ways, ways that we can say, I'm receiving here. And we also should be about the business of thinking, who can I pour into and encourage? Maybe some of you should be looking for both of those relationships. Find someone more mature than you that you can help and someone that is more mature than you. Ask your pastors for good resources other than the Bible, which should always be there to make disciples. Don't get creative. That's how heresy starts. But more than that, as you're looking to the Bible, study how to better read the Bible with others. It's a Bible reading that we encourage that we're going to be teaching later, but a great book to go through and think about ways that you can make profitable use of reading the Bible with someone else. It might not be as hard as it sounds. I say this and I'm passionate about this because I believe that one-to-one -one discipleship made all the difference in my life. When I was 20 years old, had gradual growth, had uh, a little bit more growth in my last years of high school and into college, but never had anybody disciple me. Never had a man like say, hey, I want to invest in you in a one-to-one -one relationship. And I met a Sunday school teacher who was a physics professor at my university, at my college. And I said, hey, would you be willing to like meet to me regularly and, and like talk about God? I didn't even know it was called discipleship. In fact, I didn't know it was called discipleship, what he had done to me, until like a few years later when they said, hey, this is what discipleship is. I'm like, I think I've had that done to me before. They're like, whoa, wait, what are you talking about? But discipleship is what he did with me. He met with me. And he went through the scriptures with me. And he invited me into his home. And he showed me what it was like to love his wife. And he showed me what it was like to love his kids. He showed me what it looked like to be a Christian godly man. And I learned so much more in those two years than I learned in my previous 10 of being a Christian. 
See, discipleship made all the difference in my life. They had an influence in their life. And there might be people in your lives that you're investing in, and you have no idea the fruit that they're going to bear. In fact, the person that you disciple might bear more fruit than you ever do. And yet, that fruit, in part, is going to go back to you. Do you see that? Multiplication of disciples and what God can do for the glory of his name. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to flourish in this life for the glory of his name. You were made for so much more. And that means making disciples of others, brothers and sisters who are right here in this room. And you don't know what he's going to do with that. Let's pray. of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with covenant eyes. 
I've been using it for years. And if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name, Dustin Daniels, with no spaces in that promo box. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Do you know that when we truly praise God, there is a mighty victory being released among us? Our praise dispels the power of Satan and our enemy is defeated. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 22 says, When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. The Hebrew word for routed is nagef, which means defeated, struck down, smite down, and beaten. Our enemy is struck down when we praise Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is our banner. Let's praise His name of victory. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours. You alone are our rock and salvation, where we will not be shaken. Your strong right hand is filled with victory. Our victory and honor come from you alone. The fame of your name echoes throughout the entire world. We will sing our highest praises to you to the ends of the earth forever. Amen. Now is the time to repent of our sins and worship Him with our radical thanksgiving. Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. God's word warns us that we should not have any idols in our lives. The definition of the word idol in the Merriam-Webster dictionary is an object of extreme devotion and a symbol of an object of worship. Do you have any idols in your life? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and repent of any idols in our lives. We lay them down at your feet. Lord, give us clean hands and pure hearts. Restore fresh passion and undivided devotion in us. You are the only one who is worthy of our adoration and true worship. Thank you, Father, for covering us with your mercy and love. Amen. This January, I attended a prayer conference where I watched college students crying out for every generation in his holy name. 
the desperate cry of their burning hearts deeply moved me to tears. Today, let's join our hearts with the cry of the next generation and firmly intercede for His church with Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 through 3, which says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways. Hear our hearts cry from heaven and forgive us and heal your church. We call out to you on behalf of your people. Give us minds ready to receive your wisdom and revelation so we will truly know you and the power of your living word. Restore the fear of the Lord among us so we'll worship in spirit and truth consumed with faithful love and holy reverence for you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and power. We will arise and shine as your light to preach the gospel to the nations. Use us as your voices of truth as you open the door of faith for the nations to receive the gift and joy of your salvation. Empower us to discover the great magnitude of the astonishing love of Christ in all its dimensions. Jesus, fasten us as your bride upon your heart as a seal of fire forevermore. This living, consuming flame will seal us as your prisoner of love. Our passion is stronger than the chains of death and the grave, all-consuming as the very flashes of fire from your burning heart, a perfect love which expels all fear and fills us to the fullness of your glory. Teach us how to truly love each other. Real proof of our love for you must be in how we express love and treat others with dignity, honor, and respect in your agape love. Father, revive your church so we'll live lives full of the Spirit, marked by truth and power and set apart with purity and holiness in this era. Give us understanding and insight to discern the times and seasons we are living in and raise us up as your victorious bride, fulfilling every destiny and purpose you want to accomplish in our generation. Now we offer up to you, mighty God, all the glorious praise that rises from every church in every generation. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.